0: Final entries for the Mumbrella Publish Awards are due midnight tomorrow with 28 categories across consumer, B2B, digital, print and custom publishing. Now is the time to start submitting those entries. Enter now for a chance to be recognised by the industry by going to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards.
1: Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast, I'm Callum Jaspin and today are we finally starting to see ground seeded by the tech giants. Monday saw Google ordered to pay $715,000 in damages as the publisher of YouTube content. Once again we'll ask, is Google a publisher? We'll also contrast two sets of media agency rankings and ask how the numbers are compiled and what they mean. Finally, seven years on from leaving Australia and a year into his new role as global CEO of huge, Matt Baxter joins the podcast. Joining me today for the news chat is acting deputy editor Emma Shepherd. Hello, Em.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: And reporter Kalila Welch. How are you doing, Khalila?
2: Not doing too bad, thank you. How are you, Cal?
1: I'm good, Khalil. I've just eaten half a packet of corn thins, so if my mouth sounds a bit dry, that's where uh, that's where you know it's coming from. What did you both have for lunch?
2: How does a mouth sound dry? <laughs> yeah,
0: cotton mouth, they call it, Cal.
2: Yeah. Um, I just I'm uh, <laughs> actually midway through eating a bowl of bolognese, but it's sitting on my desk, so. You did bring the bolognese sweet.
1: into the podcast. It's not-
2: No, I didn't, because I didn't think that would be fun ASMR.
1: (laughs) Anyway, cracking on to the first topic of the day. On Monday, the Federal Court of Australia ruled in favour of former Deputy Premier of New South Wales, John Barilaro, ordering Google to pay the former politician for defamatory remarks published on its site, YouTube, by popular content creator and commentator Jordan Shanks, aka Friendly Geordies. It was reported that Google had essentially abandoned its defense by the end of the trial, essentially conceding the case. With this ruling, it could spell further action in the future as the tech giant has always firmly insisted that it is not a publisher. So, Khalil, what was the ruling here? What might it spell moving forward for major platforms like Google and Facebook, for example?
2: Yeah, so a bit of context. Um, This is obviously the latest instalment in what has been uh, an ongoing case between Barilaro and Shanks for quite some time. Uh, It was settled separately in a federal court case in November last year between the two of them. Basically, Shanks had to publicly apologise to Barilaro and edit his YouTube channel in accordance with his requests. But that's kind of been put to bed now and this part was a little bit different so obviously Barilaro and his team have taken issue with Google for failing to I guess take down Shanks or Friendly Geordie's content uh, that was seen to be defamatory to Barilaro and also contained racial slurs about his Italian heritage which is um, in conflict with the YouTube platform's policies about cyberbullying court found that Google had failed to take responsibility for its conduct as a publisher and the tech giant had failed to apply its own policies designed to prevent hate speech cyberbullying and harassment so basically as you mentioned Google had abandoned its case by the end of the proceedings and most interestingly had to accept its position as a publisher or kind of admit its position as a publisher um, by I guess accepting the order I guess Um, and that's despite, as you mentioned, years of arguing the opposite in a bid to be excluded from the news media bargaining code alongside its stablemate Meta. I did reach out to a couple of local publishers about what this could mean for the industry, um, particularly for Google and Meta, um, after having denied the fact that they're publishers for such a long time. And while um, other publishers were pretty quick to say it wouldn't affect them directly at all, so they didn't really want to say too much about it, I did get the sense that It is kind of going to change, I guess, the competition between your more mainstream traditional publishers and the tech platforms because it is kind of, I guess, a precedent for equalizing their responsibilities in terms of defamation, um, which obviously is such a big thing locally. Um, And it's going to make it quite difficult for both platforms to continue separating themselves from everyone else.
1: Yeah, I mean, interestingly, um, I, I reached out to Google and, uh, I, you know, as far as the response I got was that Google are still kind of piling over and looking over the um, the ruling just now. It's got its lawyers pulling over the ruling and considering its next steps. So I'm sure at some point we will see some sort of response. I don't think it is quite the end of the story on that front, whereas, the you know, basically, if they've conceded or not. and um, more widely for some of these tech firms, is there any idea um, how, the, how the response is looking there?
0: Um, so I reached out to Yahoo today um, and the ACCC. They've yet to come back with a response. Um, but, you know, I do think that this defamation lawsuit is likely to kind of bolster private lawsuits um, in similar cases. Um, I think the lawyers can then point to those victories, aka the Google loss, as evidence um, that a certain company broke the law and moved quickly to their primary aim, which is obviously to obtain monetary damages. The main question is, should Google and other platforms like Facebook or um, even Yahoo be deemed publishers for content that appears on its sites? Some say Google sharing a hyperlink isn't enough to deem it a publisher, but is sharing others' content not enough? Um, There was a defamation case between a Melbourne lawyer and Google last month um, that is still ongoing in the High Court of Australia over whether the search engine giant is classified as a publisher or not. Um, And I know back then, last month, sorry, Google's lawyers came back saying a hyperlink is not in and of itself the communication of that to which it links. But as you said, Cal, um, Google is yet to respond, um, you know, on the claims to whether or not they're a publisher they see themselves as a publisher. So this is uh, ongoing.
1: Yeah, I think, well, obviously the, the main difference here being that um, this was, you know, a video published on YouTube. This is Friendly Geordie's livelihood. Um, that's how he and, you know, he has several employees makes his makes his earnings. So I guess a little bit different um, to Hyperlinks, but, you know, same kind of case there. Khalil, you looked at a past case sort. Of similar to this, not quite um, in the same kind of uh, area, but the, one of the last high profile rulings, the Dylan Volo case a few years ago. Um, any similarities there?
2: Yeah. So this does have some really interesting parallels um, with the current case between Baralara and Google. Uh, the nature was slightly different, as you mentioned. So instead of looking at who's responsible for content, On the platform, it was looking at who's responsible for defamatory comments posted to the platform, in this case, Facebook. Uh, So essentially what had happened was that members of the public had made defamatory comments on story links that were posted to Facebook by a number of publications, including the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian Sky News and the Vault Report. Um, The decision was um, met, you know, by... A lot of dissatisfaction from Australian publishers with News Corp um, denouncing the High Court's decision, and there were appeals made by Fairfax, Nationwide News, and Australian and the Australian News Channel, um, which fell flat ultimately um, to the ruling that media outlets are in fact responsible for the comments made on Facebook posts on their Facebook profiles. Um, But speaking to one industry insider, she pointed to the fact that the ruling was uh, particularly interesting given the fact that the platform at the time lacked proper kind of infrastructure to allow publications or um, Facebook users, I guess, to moderate comments. So they were basically relying on having to delete comments after they've been posted, which we've talked about. Previously, when we were looking at misinformation, disinformation, and it is quite limiting, obviously, things can do the damage um, as soon as they're up. So that was really interesting there. I do believe they could filter through comments, but obviously things were getting through filters because if people were misspelling or, you know, they were slightly changing up the way they were phrasing things to intentionally bypass the filters, um, it's a pretty easy way of getting around it. Um, at the time, Facebook did get off kind of scot-free. They weren't really, um, they they weren't found to be responsible for the defamation. It was only the publications themselves, um, despite the fact that they were on its own platform. Um, the court basically cited the fact that um, it was the responsibility of the publishers because of that fact that they could moderate them after being published. And so it, it was a little bit different because in this case, Facebook was not found to be a publisher, whereas obviously the Google case, um, according to the court, Google has been found to be responsible.
1: Hi there, podcast listeners. Just uh, jumping back on as just after we finished the recording, an article from The Guardian was posted basically outlining that uh, Australian courts might not be able to enforce the order for Google paying John Barilaro uh, due to free speech protections in US law according to legal academics. In this Guardian article, Dr. Damien Spry, an expert in social media impacts on politics and diplomacy, says there are a couple of very powerful American laws that protect US-based internet companies from defamation penalties. The important point is Google can try and ignore the court ruling because U.S. laws provide a shield to U.S. companies that can be used to hide behind, he told The Guardian. Sprite continued that if Google does accept the ruling, then the kind of accepted local jurisdiction, um, but this would potentially spell Google being dragged back into court over and over again. So again... Um, everything kind of hinging on what Google decides to do. Yet, yeah, this is not the end of the story, but an interesting uh, point we just figured we would tack on the end of the discussion there. Coming up next, uh, a quick look at the top 15 media agencies in Australia. Yesterday, media agency buildings from the top 15 agencies in Australia were published on trade newsletter service Unmade with the figures provided by Convergence. This came a week after here on Mumbrella, we posted similar figures compiled in a report seen by Mumbrella uh, from RECMA referring to client portfolio size, um, though I should caveat at this time that RECMA has disputed the figures in that article published. It's important to note that while we now have figures within the last two weeks from two sources judging agency size at the end of 2021, these are not definitive and they've clearly used different methodologies to compile the data. So we've put together, uh, I guess, two graphs, looking at the two lists to kind of judge whether or not they're accurate. And I guess what we can take from that seeing is they are two separate sources. M, what are we seeing from both sets? Any similarities there?
0: Yeah, so on average, The agency portfolio size is around 15 to 25% larger in the RECMA figures, with the exception of UM, uh, which the RECMA numbers estimated to be around 38% larger. And, you know, looking at the two lists side by side, they're pretty much exactly the same in order, aside from PhD in the third spot in the convergence figures and fourth in RECMA's figures. Uh, And additionally, publicist agencies Spark Foundry and Zenith are interchanged in the 9th and 10th spot. So not too much of a difference.
1: And if we're looking at the top 10 by Holding Group, Kalila, how, how does that look?
2: So by Holdco, the top 10 is made up of two OMG agencies, three Group M agencies, two publicist agencies, two IPG agencies, and one Dentsu. The rest of the top 15 are also exactly the same, with the exception of Indie Agencies Atomic 212, appearing in the 15th spot on the RECMA list, and Nun Media on Convergences. Importantly, on both the scales, the new combined Essence MediaCom agency is bumped up to, to number two on the list, just clear of Media Brands UM.
1: Yeah, it will be um, interesting to see how this changes over the course of the next year if we do, I guess, get access to some figures at that time. Uh, And we'll be interested to see if any of those agencies can creep up on OMD, which has held that top spot for some time. But I guess the key takeaway here is that, you know, that combined new agency from Group M, they are, uh, you know, on both metrics, whichever way you want to look at it, they're the second largest agency now uh, in the market. The, the, I guess the reason we bring this in here is because, you know, it, it has been some time before we've really had a good look at the industry in this sort of scope. And with having two sets of figures to cross reference in the space of two weeks, um, it's sort of a, a good opportunity to just take stock and kind of see how the industry is progressing. Obviously, a lot of talk in recent months and years about the uprising of those indie agencies, but. Um, The way things are looking, it's still firmly dominated by the holding groups at the top end, although, you know, what these figures don't, of course, show that sort of uh, very much wide bottom end, which is sort of represented quite heavily by indies across the market who, you know, are increasingly picking up a share in their own right. Up next, Matt Baxter checks in from the States. Matt Baxter, global CEO of Huge. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Callum.
3: I'm glad to be uh, able to join you.
1: Yeah, it's uh, nice to see we're sitting in
3: very, very different settings and very different climates, uh, as it appears. <laughs> well, I hear so, you're um, in Melbourne and it, and it's very cold. So I, I, I'm in New York, and actually, it's warmed up now. We're in we're we're in the summer months, so it's actually uh, beautiful here right now.
1: Yeah, well, we're um, we're let's not let's not go into that a bit too much, or I'll get a bit jealous. But so um, it's it's been around a year since you took on this new uh, global role with huge. How how has that first year been? Has it been, I guess, a little bit challenging? Potentially moving a little bit outside of your comfort zone.
3: Yeah, it has been. Um, it's definitely been uh, a challenge in terms of just getting my head around the diversity of what really huge does as a as a business um, versus what I was doing, obviously in the media agency world. So it's been a pretty um, a pretty, a pretty crazy and busy twelve months. We're in the midst of a pretty radical transformation of the company um, that's due to be complete by November of this year. So really, once I arrived there, we kind of set about. Redefining what we wanted to be as a company and the sorts of services we'd deliver for clients, and so we're we're right in the in the in the midst of that as as we speak.
1: Speaking to I guess people around the industry here, there, there was um, I guess we look we look to America from afar. Uh, what sort of prompted the the move across? Was it that kind of opportunity to kind of take something on from I guess a, a base level? You know, you were head of this global media. Uh, network. And um, yeah, I mean, w- w- was it just that challenge that really prompted it?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, i I'd, I'd been in media for more than 15 years. And whenever you're, you're in an industry for that long, you become, I think, increasingly familiar and possibly even complacent about your own learning and development. And I'd felt really, over the last few years in particular, that some of that learning and development had really kind of plateaued for me and so i was interested to do something new i wanted something that would really put me as you said out of my comfort zone and i felt that huge was a really interesting place to go and really push myself you know totally different business um, totally different workforce with very different skills and and expertise and so i felt that that the move would would be the right one and let's face it you know digital continues to be the growth frontier for for both clients and for agencies and so I felt being in a digitally centric business would be would be a smart thing for me as well.
1: It's interesting, kind of you know, saying that you needed to learn a few more. What have you sort of picked up
3: or learned within that first year? Oh my god, I won't even try to <laughs> try to explain that explain that in this uh, in this discussion. I mean, a lot. I you know everything from um, what it takes to do great UI UX um, experience design. Uh, physical product development is an area that we do also as an agency. Um, you know, social commerce, the diversity of of what Huge does is probably one of the biggest challenges as a leader because there is such a breadth of capability and experience that you have to be both extremely kind of understanding of those capabilities, but also be very good at team design. You know, every time a particular project comes into the agency with a different set of needs, um, uh, you have to really think very carefully about what are those team design components that you've got to you've got to put together to successfully complete that project. That's something that in a media agency is less of a concern. You tend to have a more permanent team. That's put on a piece of business at a certain percentage, and that's an AOR assignment. It runs for the year. It's pretty consistent. Um, huge as a project business, we get we get projects um, large and small, from you know as diverse a thing as build me a B two B site all the way through to build me a physical product and design it and and pilot it in market. That that diversity really has challenged my understanding of kind of. What everybody does and the comp the, the kind of jigsaw pieces that need to be put together to deliver on that project, and that team design component has been a really big learning curve for me, really big learning curve
1: yeah and at, at an individual level, I was listening to a podcast you did recently with um Adam Ferrier and Brent Smart, and you spoke a little bit about the difference between working with you know the type of uh, i guess <laughs> staffers that huge has maybe more on the the creative side compared to those. Oh. Uh, Those media minds, uh, you know, I guess where you've spent the last 15 or so years, it would be interesting for you to, uh, I guess, just delve into that a little bit
3: more for us here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, in a media agency, you have typically a a, a very pragmatic and rational workforce. You know, they deal with numbers, they deal with data, They they are easy or easier to take on a journey when you have a rational argument to do something. Let's redesign how we operate as a company for these reasons. And as long as you you, you explain those reasons clearly, the workforce tends to, to go with you um, pretty readily. In a creative environment, it's a very different culture. It's a more emotional culture that is, you know, very rooted in the craft and the work. And even though you might outlay a rational argument to make changes to the organisation, there is that emotional anchor to the past and to what people do in their, day, in their day-to-day work that is much more prevalent and much harder to, to um, deliver and organize and change. And so that's been a really big learning experience for me. I've had to adopt a very different leadership style in, in huge than I had in media. And that's part of why I love the change because it has been really personally challenging for me, but but we're making really good progress and I feel like we're really in a good position. You know, come November, we'll be a very different organization um, without losing the spirit of that creative culture, um, but with a very clear purpose and a very clear kind of commercial model to move forward with and hopefully to prosper under as well. Do
1: you think it's, it seems like, you know, these would be two completely different parts of your brain that you kind of need to use to, I guess, well, just to describe the two different types of workers that you're talking about there. Do you think it's possible to kind of have an individual that meets at that cross section and kind of has the ability to flip between both?
3: Oh look, absolutely. Neither are kind of mutually exclusive. I think you know some of the most gifted and talented people do balance those two things extremely well. I think increasingly you've got to bring both things to the table in the current climate. Right? Clients are looking for both of those, uh, both of those philosophies and approaches uh, in 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 one person, and increasingly. Our market is is fusing. You know, if you look at the fusion and convergence uh, convergence that's going on with marketing and technology right now, marketing is becoming, you know, both a very rational, pragmatic, and data driven um, practice and and discipline, but also continues to be rooted in emotion and creativity and all of the things that deliver real depth of experience and impact for for audiences. So, I think both of those things are critical you do find them in 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 people you know but of course there are biases some people are more left brain some people are more right brain but i think increasingly to be successful you've got to be able to exercise both sides pretty evenly to 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 get ahead and to to make progress
1: have you worked with any kind of great minds where you've thought oh they just they just get it on on both sides of it <laughs>
3: Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, there's enormous talent in our in our business. You know, that was one of the first things I did when I started in the role was really to wrap my head around what raw material I was working with, right? You know, what talent was in the organization? Um, what was, you know, the 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 composition of that workforce, who who was great, who was maybe not so great, how do we reorganize that talent base to optimize ourselves for the future? I've spent a lot of time doing that and absolutely I've come across people that balance those two things beautifully. And by the way, if you don't, that doesn't matter either, right? There can mm-hmm. be people that operate extremely efficiently on either side of that um, left or right brain and they can bring enormous value to the organization. You don't have to be able to balance both evenly or, or distribute yourself in, in, in a kind of an equal balance of those two things. You can be as effective um, if you're very biased to left or right as well and by the way, some of the greatest people we have in our organization do that and do that every day.
1: Yeah and I guess off the back of that discussion you also sort of spoke about you know as you were just just speaking about there the the sort of increasing trend of uh, marketers looking for creative and media sort of being blended together. Do you think there will be an opportunity for that to, I guess, increase in a more material sense in the coming years? And I guess, is there anywhere where you see that opportunity?
3: Look, I think there's been an increase in literacy in the industry as a whole, right? Creative agencies have become much more media literate, much more aware of where their ideas will live and the the environments in which they'll come to life and understand that inherent in the creative idea is the distribution platform or environment in which it's delivered i i think the really good creative agencies and if you look at the best creative agencies in the world one of the common themes in that is that they are very very media literate and really engage with media agencies in an equal partnership to amplify and distribute their ideas Likewise I think the best media agencies in the world have a real creative sensibility right the job of a med- a good media agency is not to kill an idea or constrain it it's to liberate it and to propel it into an environment and an audience ultimately that that allows it to breathe and prosper and ultimately really be successful so I think on both sides the best of breed are are sensible and and aware of the needs of the other of the other side of the coin, so to speak, and clients are the same, right? Clients understand that these two things have really converged. Like the, the 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 separation between the the media and the message is so blurred now because of the rise of social platforms and you know the channel being as much a part of the message as the message itself. I think you're just going to continue to see that happen, and and you know, as I said, the best agencies are are adapting to that reality. So when
1: um, I guess you you made the decision that you were going to move on from initiative, did you did you sort of pinpoint? I know you've you've been with IPG for uh, such a long period of time now. Did you kind of have a bit of freedom to discuss with them what your next opportunity would be? And did you I guess maybe discuss yeah. the idea of kind of you know some sort of big full service agency or. Where, where where did that come? Yeah. Where, where did that kind of come about?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'd been speaking to IPG about my kind of next move for for more than a year. Um, and IPG has a very very thorough and rigorous kind of succession planning process, and so I had kind of identified my successor more than a year out from my moving on from initiative. Um, and so yes, it was a long conversation. It was a conversation where I wanted to be picky. You know, I wanted to pick something that I felt really not only inspired by but kind of um that I felt was as I said going to really challenge me and and I found that in Huge we explored a few things but Huge really was the thing that kind of landed for me and was was the most exciting and compelling and so you know yes I mean it was a it was a pretty protracted process but in a good way I mean when you hand over a business like initiative with its scale and its success. You know, we 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 had a great track record of success over the over the pre- you know, past few years of, of 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 the business kind of operating. You want to make sure that you really plan for that and you maintain that success, and that there's a leader that can step in and and really take the reins and continue to kind of propel it into into kind of the the, the position that you want it to be in. So, um, yeah, it was pretty 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 protracted process.
1: And was that 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 sort of um, period when you moved into that chair role, was that just about kind of making it as smooth as possible?
3: Yeah, it was about having a support network um, for for the new CEO, um, being able to be a sounding board as, as they transitioned into the role and making sure that clients also felt that it was an orderly transition. You know, being the global CEO one day and then a month later disappearing into a new role within IPG, that doesn't set the conditions for a lot of the big clients to feel as though there's that kind of organized and, and orderly handover, and also you know al- allowing the new CEO to foster relationships globally that they might not have had with clients. I kind of acted as a intermediary and an introducer for those things as well as chairman. So yeah, it was a it was a a way of us kind of softening the transition, I guess, for both the business and for clients. So um,
1: I think when when you took up the the role, at huge um, you know, a few people made the point that there is currently no presence in australia
3: um <laughs> is there is there i mean that surely that must have been a conversation at this point yeah look it's something that's come up for sure given you know my background and the fact that you know australia still continues really for me uh, to be my home i still consider it my home um i've got obviously a, a network in australia one of the things we've done at huge is we've moved to what we call borderless working so um, I think it's a very old fashioned notion that in order to operate in a market, you need a physical office or a footprint in that market. I think COVID has proven that you can operate a business and deliver a service from anywhere in the world and push that capability and that service into a market, even if you don't have that physical presence. And so one of the things that we've in, we've implemented at Huge is a completely borderless working model where we've moved to a completely remote working posture Yes, you can come into an office if you so choose, but we're now hiring people and working with people from around the world who who are in markets where we have no physical office mm-hmm. and no physical footprint at all. And so we're open for business in Australia um, right now because if you want to give us work, we can get that work done regardless of not being actually, you know, yeah. physically present in, in in the market. So, you know, we're doing work already in a number of markets around the world where offices don't exist and so, you know, in that respect, yes, you know, Australia is a viable and active market for us. Are we going to establish a physical office with physical footprint in Australia? No, not not in the foreseeable future. We don't feel we need to. In fact, we've got a live conversation going right now with an, with a relatively large Australian business to do uh, a project for them, which we would facilitate and deliver, ex, you know, exclusively via our existing workforce, mainly based in either the US or, or the UK.
1: And um, so that there would, I mean, would you be open to employees in Australia or is it, is it kind of a basis where you can work oh, from wherever?
3: Yeah, totally. Like if there's a great designer, if there's a great UX um, uh, person, if there's somebody that has the the requisite skill set and the, the level of, uh, of quality of work that we're looking for, yeah, we don't care where they live. We'll hire people from anywhere in the world. Um, you know, we just hired a few people a couple of weeks ago in Spain. Obviously, we don't have a Spanish office. We've got employees in Brazil. Um, we've got employees in uh, in parts of Europe where we don't operate. For example, like Amsterdam. So, you know, our, our employee base just continues to become more and more geographically diverse because we have liberated ourselves from saying you got to live in a certain location to join Huge. You don't. Yeah. And so, if there if there are strains that 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 um, put put their hat in the ring and ask for for an opportunity to work with us. We'll absolutely consider them equally alongside anyone from anywhere else in the world
1: and what was that experience like as a as a global ceo during you know covid everyone went into lockdown I imagine a big part of your job previously was jumping on planes and jetting off around the world to to you know visit your various outposts was what was that like was it was it i guess an easy situation to manage did you struggle at times or
3: Look, I think the weirdest experience for me during COVID, and there have been plenty of weird experiences for all of us during COVID, I think the weirdest one from a from a professional standpoint was onboarding as a CEO without being able to physically meet any employee and not being able to visit any office. And to do all of that onboarding remotely with a video screen um, presented some pretty unique kind of, you know, Pretty unique challenges. How do you connect with people on a personal level uh, at, at at to the same degree that you would if you were meeting them face to face and having a chance to, you know, just chat casually? You know, that doesn't tend to happen on video as much. Um, how do you rally the organization behind a new purpose and positioning which we we've established? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, since I joined, how do you educate people about new products that we might be delivering uh, into the future? How do you train? How do you develop? all of those things with COVID were more complicated and more difficult to execute. So on that level, absolutely. I found it a challenge. I also found it personally challenging. Like I'm sure lots of people did, you know um, COVID created more isolation for for me socially uh, than I was used to mm-hmm. obviously away from family who are in Australia, um, you know, in a new job, all of the, all of the well-documented, I think mental health challenges and, and just social challenges that COVID presented, I felt as a, as a leader and as an individual. And so, you know, I've really enjoyed us getting back to a bit of normalcy in New York City. You know, we're, we're now, you know, no masking, uh, physical attendance at the office is optional, but we're doing it. Uh, physical uh, meetups for client workshops, for big presentations. And I've been able to take, you know, team members out for the first time and actually enjoy spending time with them um in the real world and that's been a great experience for me
1: yeah, it's uh i guess a big topic of conversation here as well you know we had two years of sporadic lockdowns i think uh companies are still figuring out definitely you know whether things are optional kind of you know and then there was the the elon musk discussion last week a minimum of <laughs> 40 hours so i guess everyone's yeah, got I, their, I, their I, different I, approach
3: <laughs> yeah i i disagree with that i i think um <laughs> we've moved to a fully flexible model or what we call a fully flexible model, which is you can work from anywhere that you choose um, full time. If you, if you so choose, there is no mandatory return to the office. You can not come back to the office at all. If you, if, if that's what you want to do Um, we encourage that people do come into the office occasionally to create that connection and to keep that culture alive. But one of the things we're doing is reimagining the office altogether, right? So, um, a few weeks ago I announced that we'll actually be closing all our physical offices around the world with the exception of Brooklyn, um, which is a big you know heritage uh, city or, or location for us. you know it was where huge was born. and so all of we will sunset all of our global offices. We will continue to have Brooklyn. Brooklyn will become a global experience center and it will facilitate experiencing the brand and the culture in a different way to an office. And we will create physical meetups and and experiences for people in other locations that will replace the office experience because the office experience is a really flat and boring experience for employees, right? You come together, you plonk yourself down in, in, in a spot and you spend most of the day on your computer and you might see people in passing when you're at the elevators or when you have your lunch, but it's not exactly a dynamic and exciting experience for employees. What we're saying is let's get rid of the office. Let's let's remove that constraint of coming to a physical location and working from that location. And instead, let's create experiences for employees that bond us together and build our culture in different ways. So we're actually designing a cultural calendar that we will facilitate and pay for, which will facilitate those sorts of experiences, build a different and deeper sort of culture. And we And the difference is when we close our offices, We've now got employees scattered all over the place. And what used to happen was if you had an office structure, you could only go and experience the brand if you live near an office. And lots of people now don't live anywhere near our legacy Mm -hmm. office structure. Nowhere near. For example, we've got offices in Chicago, Detroit, Atlanta, Oakland, L.A. and Brooklyn in the U.S. And yet we've got a distribution of employees now Where we've got more than 20 employees in Austin, Texas. We've got employees in North Carolina. We've got employees all over the US. Now, none of them could experience the brand under the office structure because they were nowhere near an office. Now, what we can do with the cultural uh, calendar is say, hey, we've got 20 employees in Austin. Let's create a pop-up event for those employees every month so they can connect and network and have a cultural experience and then occasionally fly people from around the world to the experience center which will be a landmark experience for people that will really embody the huge brand we're moving premises we're completely redecking out that 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 kind of location to be something other than an office we're reimagining what that will look like as an experience center and so the whole floor plan what 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 goes on in in that in that space and that environment will change and so i do think there's there's a kind of there's a need for us to rethink the office yeah. because the office is a really old fashioned concept and we wanted to break free from it and really liberate ourselves from it and, and that's what we've done so I'm really excited about that and that we announced that to staff a couple of weeks ago It had a really good response um, it got picked up by quite a few um, uh, trade titles in the US in particular. And I really uh, am excited about us kind of trying to be a bit of a pioneer on redesigning some of that.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's um, I, I think it's something you kind of spoke about uh, quite a while ago when you were in Australia at UM. UM. You sort of spoke about the, the hours that I guess are expected of juniors coming into the industry. Now, do you think that... I guess that kind of, you know, working style and environment where you aren't necessarily in your office and you don't have your boss looking over your shoulder, do you think that will change, I guess, the way people work as well? Will there be a different expectation of people? Will, I guess, it be a more punishing or a more enjoyable life?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, the only standard that I think anyone should be held to is is your work fantastic and do you get everything done on time. And provided those two variables are delivered against, don't really care about how you do it, right? That's mm-hmm. up to you. I think really good people who care about the work they're doing and care about the client that they're working on will be diligent and responsible. You know, the 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 office the office was born from a time where, you know, the the company needed to be You needed to come into the office and your boss needed to look over your shoulder and make sure you were working and you turned up on time and you arrived at 9.05 instead of 9 o'clock. You were late. That's a problem. Like it was a very command and control construct, right? And And a construct that, quite frankly, messaged to employees that the company doesn't trust you enough and therefore wants you physically to report to a location to prove you're working. I think we need to be a bit more grown up than that as companies and say, you know what? We need to trust our people enough to let them do what they need to do wherever they choose to do it. And it's on them to make sure they deliver. And provided they deliver, then that's great. Now, if they don't deliver, that's a whole nother discussion. And that's for the company to manage. But I think if you get the right quality of talent, then all of those issues you just talked about melt into the background. They Mm -hmm. become irrelevant because really good people are diligent. And I just think that, companies need to message trust and respect you know the workforce today particularly younger people will not tolerate an environment that is anything other than that and quite frankly you know we're a technology company you know we're not we're not an ad agency at all less than 10% of our revenue is advertising driven less than 10% mm-hmm. most of our revenue is data technology design and and kind of creative and brand experience driven and so that workforce has so many options, particularly in the US with Facebook, Google, and all these tech companies offering really talented technology people, great packages, very flexible work conditions. If we don't pivot and adapt to to meet the needs of of our emerging talent base, we're not going to be able to secure the talent or retain the talent that we need. So this isn't really like a decision that is a particularly complex decision to reach, right? It's out of necessity. It's like, do it or die. And I think companies like Elon Musk saying, oh, you've got to come back and do 40 hours in, in the office. Well, guess what? A large chunk of his workforce will say, you know what? I don't need to do that because I can get a job somewhere else that pays me just as much, if not more, that gives me more flexibility, I'm out of here. And you know who will be the first people to do that? His best people because they've got the most options. The best people will go, you know what, Tesla's not for me, I'll go and find a job somewhere else. And they'll get the pick of whatever they want and they'll get exactly the conditions they're looking for. So I think you know his comments were surprisingly actually – I, I kind of almost feel backward given how progressive he is with so many other things. So I was kind of surprised by them, to be honest. It was a bit surprising.
1: Do you think, it, I mean, part of this, you know, as you say, kind of comes through trust and like kind of knowing that you're, you know, it, it's not really, there's no There's no really alternative that's the way things are going. Do you think um, it kind of comes down to the individual, for example, someone in your role to sort of, uh, I guess, be the change and kind of implement these things? Because I would imagine out there, there would be agencies or there are agencies who are, I guess, trying to get things back to where they were before.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a really interesting topic, right? And and I said this to the company at our All Hands when I announced we were moving fully flexible. I actually, um only two months prior to that, All Hands, made an announcement where I said, everyone's going to have to come back to the office two days a week. And I made that, that decision and that announcement to the company um, and, and then really had time to think about it. You know, the second wave of COVID hit and I really reflected on that decision and that, that policy. And I caught myself doing something that I think, you know, no, no leader should ever do, which was I wanted people to return to the office because for me, given my age, I'm 44. For me, the office is a comfort blanket. You know, my view of a company is you have to have an office and people have to be in it to run a company effectively. And that's the only way collaboration can happen is you've got to have people in an office. And what I found myself doing was kind of gripping on for dear life to the conditions and the environment that we had pre-COVID and almost trying to go back in time to kind of a pre-COVID era, almost ignoring the evolution that had happened during COVID in how we work and the and, and the way people want to work, and so I kind of I, I reflected on that, and said you know what I'm wrong, I made the wrong decision. I said that at all hands, I said look, it was it was the wrong decision. It was a decision that I made because of my own personal views and my need personally to be back in an office. We actually don't need to do that mm-hmm. and change that decision. I think it was right to to change the decision. Now that's not to say that as I said. People will not physically meet up and we will have an in-person culture. We will. It will just happen in a different sort of way.
1: Yeah, and uh, I guess it, it, it's slightly different also for Huge. You said 10% of your services right now are in advertising. The kind of comes back to um, maybe a challenge that might arise. This is something that you spoke about quite quite heavily in Australia and um, the, the Ditch the Pitch campaign. Do you think that, for example the nature of pitching will be challenged by individuals being, you know, spread around the world and kind of only being able to sort of collaborate in those kind of maybe more structured
3: meeting settings. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think the pitch process, let's face it, is expensive. Um, And one of the things that's very common in a pitch is, you know, a multitude of meetings in person, historically, all around the world for global pitches, you know, visit us in 12, 15, 20 markets, fly your pitch team, at least your global pitch team to all of those markets to do in person with local teams and chemistries and all of those sorts of things. And that just adds to the enormous expense of running a pitch for an agency. I think COVID has reduced the need to do a lot of that travel and in-person meeting. I think you can run a pitch now and facilitate a lot of that global Connectivity remotely without needing to fly at great expense. To your team to follow the client around all of their local markets and and deliver against all of the stages of a pitch. So I think travel uh, budgets for pitches should and and um, will reduce. I think clients will do more things remotely than they have pre-COVID. However, uh, I still think in in a pitch, clients want to make a personal connection. They want to eyeball the team that's going to work on their business. And I think in the later stages of pitches, when you've kind of removed the long list and you're in that really kind of short list stage and the final kind of throws of a pitch, that clients will still want to see uh, agencies turn up and be in person to to do some of that work. And by the way, a really big pitch with a great idea, I still think you can't beat being in a room with a client yeah. doing, that, doing that in real life. And so... You know, I don't think that should disappear from the pitch process. I think it's an important part of it. But I do think those earlier stages can be can be um, moved to a more remote kind of posture and save agencies a lot of money. And by the way, also clients, right? Because clients also get the travel expense um, benefit of hosting those meetings remotely rather than flying their own team all around the world to do to do that as well.
1: And and where do you kind of um, where do you kind of sit on that whole kind of discussion now? I know in two thousand nineteen you hosted a session at Mumbrella three hundred and sixty entitled "Ditch the Pitch." Have you ha, has COVID changed things for you at all on that, or do you still kind of firmly sit in the same camp?
3: No, I, look, I sit in the sit in the same camp. I I still have every kind of passionate view about the pitch process uh, now uh, as I had back then. I haven't seen the kind of change that I was, you know, obviously advocating for and you know, I'm not that surprised by that to be honest. You know, there are some pretty entrenched behaviors when it comes to pitching that we have as an industry. I mean, one of the things I was super impressed by to give, you know, the Aussie market some some big credit, I think um, the proactivity of the MFA and the double ANA um getting together to actually action um creating some clear kind of rules of the road for pitching and to really address some of the topics that I raised I think is really admirable it's one of the few markets in the world that's actually done anything tangible and so full credit uh, to 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 those uh, to those guys for doing for doing that work but no I haven't seen the change in fact it's gotten I think even worse because um, the continued pressure on cost control and procurement um, you know chasing, really long payment terms, for example, has only increased, you know, even in the last 12 to 24 months during COVID, more and more clients are adopting a, hey, you need to give me really, really extensive payment terms to to be a, an eligible contender in this process. And I, I still think that's the wrong behavior. You know, I've said it plenty of times, agencies are not banks, they're not there to bankroll a client's cash flow and allow them to defer payment of advertising media agency fees. That is not the job of an agency, and I still strongly disagree with any client that puts that in as mm-hmm. part of their pitch process. Um, and, and in fact, we've we've implemented a huge what we call the kind of five principles of how we go to market for clients when we compete for business, and that's a it's a five point principle plan, which is no free work, no FTES. We don't cost on FTE. We cost on a flat product cost where we bake in the team and all of the margin and overhead and set a flat product fee. No discounts, no absent clients. Um, you know, If a client isn't involved in the process up front, we don't want to participate. If a CMO can't be bothered to get involved up front in their own process, then they clearly don't care enough about it and therefore we don't really want to be involved in that as, as an agency. And then no pay to play. We're not going to pay... To be considered for business we're not going to pay to participate in a pitch so those are the five principles that we have we stick to them really strictly and um you know all we can do is change our behavior right i'm only in control of what we do so i I make sure we do uh the right thing to try and drive behavior change and you know again would encourage other agencies you know the only way we're going to change what clients do is to take a universal stand against some of those practices and as an industry just say no. And we have to get better at saying no. You know, we're so good at saying yes and we are pretty terrible at saying no.
1: What's that like, I guess, when you're part of a a global holding company such as IPG and you have these standards that you're very strict upon? Does, Does it have to get, I guess, or does it come into consideration or do they say anything to you about, you know, what are we going to do about our other agencies we kind of have to keep things within a group structure does that ever come up
3: no not really i mean ipg is a really kind of unique holding company in, in in that it's very um good at empowering its agencies to set their own direction policy and kind of rules they they don't kind of uh demand that we follow a strict consistent approach to things and i think that's part of the uniqueness of ipg it allows its operating brands to really carve out their own uh personality position and their own kind of um standards which which is great um so no there is no ipg kind of pressure that comes in over the top and says no 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 you need to do this in fact i would say they encourage their agencies to be fair fairly diligent and strict on those sorts of things because you know, we have to operate smarter, right? We're not the biggest, so when you don't have scale on your side, you have to be smarter. You have to be more selective. You have to be more uh, diligent in the way that you select business and go after things. So, no, there's no, uh, there's no kind of pressure at that level at all.
1: On uh, a, a sort of scale, as you, you said, there, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on the sort of direction that IPG would kind of look to go in locally here, um, because you know, the last. 18 months or so, they've sold off two of their sort of key uh, creative network brands, McCann and Mullen Lowe, locally. And th- recently, it's kind of left them potentially a little bit without that sort of major creative firepower. And they were almost, um, I guess, indirectly called out by Coles recently when they went to market and said, We're going for a bespoke model. We want WPP, Omnicom, and Publicis because we believe they've, you know, the only ones that can offer us a full solution there later on obviously initiative was invited uh with accenture where do you think things kind of go for ipg do you think they need that creative firepower here
3: look i mean it would be kind of unfair and probably inappropriate for me to kind of speak on behalf of ipg about their broader corporate strategy for the australian market you know they've obviously made certain decisions i'm sure there are good reasons for that i'm not really privy to that 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 rationale or that thinking, and so I wouldn't really want to comment on that. I'd you know stick to stick to my knitting and make comments <laughs> on huge and huge alone. Uh, I, I I won't try and uh, try and guess what they're doing and why they're doing it. But but I mean, look, um, it goes without saying, the market as a whole is increasingly competitive. Um, you know, the market is moving underneath our feet every day, and increasingly, holding companies are having to make strategic decisions about the the portfolio, the composition of that portfolio, how it's structured to make sure they remain competitive and profitable. And, you know, I'm sure IPG is coming at things from that, from, from that vantage point.
1: And um j- just finally, Matt, it would be interesting after a year in the role, what what do you kind of if there was one thing where you'd say, oh, this is what I want to achieve with huge, what what would you say that would be?
3: Uh what I want Huge to achieve is to stop being an agency with an agency mindset and really uh, transform itself into a growth acceleration company and and to operate as a growth accelerator for clients and to have the breadth and depth of service and capability to deliver on that growth. Um, there's a lot of things that are, broken in the agency kind of mindset, you know, it's very service driven. Um, it's all about hours and, and teams and percentages of time. And, you know, we know that that is increasingly under pressure and that, that margin is difficult to extract in the current environment when, when, you're, when you're structured and you think like an agency. If we can become a growth acceleration partner to clients and actually demonstrate how what we do does accelerate and generate that growth that they're looking for, it changes the cards that we have on the table when it comes to things like remuneration um, and ultimately kind of long-term sustainability and success. So that's my number one thing is to get out of that agency mindset and to get into a, that kind of growth acceleration mindset. And that's a mindset that the consultancies have, have had for a long time, right? The consultancies have been successful and I think have eaten a lot of the lunch of agencies because agencies talk outputs, Right and consultancies talk outcomes. Agencies are about producing things and consultancies are about growing things. Mm -hmm. And so we have to get into that mindset to to be truly competitive and sustainable. So that's my number one thing.
1: Well, Matt, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Callum. Really appreciate it. And that is it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure you're subscribing to us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a rating if you feel like it or if you can and check the website for all the content and updates on the media and marketing industry that you need. Emma, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Cal. Kalila, thank you. Thanks. And thanks to Matt for joining us as well. We'll see you next week.